The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon Volume 5, Chapter 58, Part 3 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 58, The First Crusade, Part 3 Recording by Claude Banta between the age of Charlemagne and that of the Crusades, a revolution had taken place among the Spaniards, the Normans, and the French, which was gradually extended to the rest of Europe. The service of the infantry was degraded to the plebeians, the cavalry formed the strength of the armies, and the honorable name of Miles, or soldier, was confined to the gentlemen who served on horseback, and were invested with the character of knighthood, the dukes and counts who had usurped the rights of sovereignty divided the provinces among their faithful barons the barons distributed among their vassals the fiefs or benefices of their jurisdiction and these military tenants the peers of each other and of their lord composed the noble or equestrian order which disdained to conceive the peasant or burgher as of the same species with themselves. The dignity of their birth was preserved by pure and equal alliances. Their sons alone, who could produce four quarters, or lines of ancestry, without spot or reproach, might legally pretend to the honor of knighthood. But a valiant plebeian was sometimes enriched and ennobled by the sword, and became the father of a new race, a single knight could impart, according to his judgment, the character which he received, and the warlike sovereigns of Europe derived more glory from this personal distinction than from the luster of their diadem. This ceremony, of which some traces may be found in Tacitus and the woods of Germany, was in its origin simple and profane. The candidate, after some previous trial, was invested with a sword and spurs, and his cheek or shoulder was touched with a slight blow as an emblem of the last affront which it was lawful for him to endure. But superstition mingled in every public and private action of life. In the holy wars it sanctified the profession of arms, and the order of chivalry was assimilated in its rights and privileges to the sacred orders of priesthood, the bath and white garment of the novice were an indecent copy of the regeneration of baptism. His sword, which he offered on the altar, was blessed by the ministers of religion. His solemn reception was preceded by fasts and vigils, and he was created a knight in the name of God, of St. George, and of St. Michael the Archangel. He swore to accomplish the duties of his profession and education, example, and the public opinion were the inviolable guardians of his oath. As the champions of God and the ladies, I blush to unite such discordant names, he devoted himself to speak the truth, to maintain the right, to protect the distressed, to practice courtesy, a virtue less familiar to the ancients, to pursue the infidels, to despise the allurements of ease and safety, and to vindicate in every perilous adventure the honor of his character. The abuse of the same spirit provoked the illiterate knight 
to disdain the arts of industry and peace, to esteem himself the sole judge and avenger of his own injuries, and proudly to neglect the laws of civil society and military discipline. Yet the benefits of this institution, to refine the temper of barbarians, and to infuse some principles of faith, justice, and humanity were strongly felt and have been often observed. The asperity of national prejudice was softened, and the community of religion and arms spread a similar color and generous emulation over the face of Christendom. Abroad in enterprise and pilgrimage, at home in martial exercise, the warriors of every country were perpetually associated, and impartial taste must prefer a Gothic tournament to the Olympic games of classic antiquity. Instead of the naked spectacles which corrupted the manners of the Greeks and banished from the stadium the virgins and matrons, the pompous decoration of the lists was crowned with the presence of chaste and high-born beauty, from whose hands the conqueror received the prize of his dexterity and courage. The skill and strength that were exerted in wrestling and boxing bear a distant and doubtful relation to the merit of a soldier, but the tournaments, as they were invented in France, and eagerly adopted both in the east and west, presented a lively image of the business of the field. The single combats, the general skirmish, the defense of a pass or castle, were rehearsed as an actual service, and the contest, both in real and mimic war, was decided by the superior management of the horse and lance. The lance was the proper and peculiar weapon of the knight. His horse was of a large and heavy breed, but this charger, till he was roused by the approaching danger, was usually led by an attendant, and he quietly rode a pad or palfrey of a more easy pace. His helmet and sword, his greaves and buckler, it would be superfluous to describe, but I may remark that at the period of the Crusades the armor was less ponderous than in later times, and that, instead of a massy cuirass, his breast was defended by a hauberk or coat of mail. When their long lances were fixed in the rest, the warriors furiously spurred their horses against the foe, and the light cavalry of the Turks and Arabs could seldom stand against the direct and impetuous weight of their charge. Each knight was attended to the field by his faithful squire, a youth of equal birth and similar hopes. He was followed by his archers and men-at-arms, and four or five or six soldiers were computed as the furniture of a complete lance. In the expeditions to the neighboring kingdoms or the Holy Land, the duties of the feudal tenure no longer subsisted. The voluntary service of the knights and their followers were either prompted by zeal or attachment, or purchased with rewards and promises, and the numbers of each squadron were measured by the power, the wealth, and the fame of each independent chieftain. They were distinguished by his banner, his armorial coat, and his cry of war, and the most ancient families of Europe must seek in these achievements the origin and proof of their nobility. In this rapid portrait of chivalry, I have been urged to anticipate on the story of the Crusades, at once an effect and a cause of this memorable institution. 
Such were the troops, and such the leaders, who assumed the cross for the deliverance of the holy sepulchre. As soon as they were relieved by the absence of the plebeian multitude, they encouraged each other by interviews and messages to accomplish their vow and hasten their departure. Their wives and sisters were desirous of partaking the danger and merit of the pilgrimage. Their portable treasures were conveyed in bars of silver and gold, and the princes and barons were attended by their equipage of hounds and hawks to amuse their leisure and to supply their table. The difficulty of procuring sustenance for so many myriads of men and horses engaged them to separate their forces. Their choice or situation determined the road, and it was agreed to meet in the neighborhood of Constantinople, and from thence to begin their operations against the Turks. From the banks of the Meuse and the Moselle, Godfrey of Bouillon followed the direct way of Germany, Hungary, and Bulgaria, and as long as he exercised the sole command, every step afforded some proof of his prudence and virtue. On the confines of Hungary, he was stopped three weeks by a Christian people, to whom the name, or at least the abuse, of the cross was justly odious. The Hungarians still smarted with the wounds which they had received from the first pilgrims. In their turn they had abused the right of defense and retaliation, and they had reason to apprehend a severe revenge from a hero of the same nation, and who was engaged in the same cause. But after weighing the motives and the events, the virtuous duke was content to pity the crimes and misfortunes of his worthless brethren, and his twelve deputies, the messengers of peace, requested in his name a free passage and an equal market. To remove their suspicions, Godfrey trusted himself and afterwards his brother to the faith of Carloman, king of Hungary, who treated them with a simple but hospitable entertainment. The treaty was sanctified by their common gospel, and a proclamation, under pain of death, restrained the animosity and license of the Latin soldiers. From Austria to Belgrade, they traversed the plains of Hungary without enduring or offering an injury, and the proximity of Carloman, who hovered on their flanks with his numerous cavalry, was a precaution not less useful for their safety than for his own. They reached the banks of the Sav, and no sooner had they passed the river than the king of Hungary restored the hostages and saluted their departure with the fairest wishes for the success of their enterprise. With the same conduct and discipline, Godfrey pervaded the woods of Bulgaria and the frontiers of Thrace, and might congratulate himself that he had almost reached the first term of his pilgrimage without drawing his sword against a Christian adversary. After an easy and pleasant journey through Lombardy, from Turin to Aquiella, Raymond and his provincials marched forty days through the savage country of Dalmatia and Sclavonia. The weather was a perpetual fog, the land was mountainous and desolate, the natives were either fugitive or hostile, loose in their religion and government, they refused to furnish provisions or guides, murdered the stragglers, and exercised by day and night the vigilance of the count, who derived more security from the punishment of some captive robbers than from his interview and treaty with the prince of Skodra. 
his march between Durazzo and Constantinople was harassed, without being stopped, by the peasants and soldiers of the Greek emperor, and the same faint and ambiguous hostility was prepared for the remaining chiefs who passed the Adriatic from the coast of Italy. Bohemond had arms and vessels, and foresight and discipline, and his name was not forgotten in the provinces of Epirus and Thessaly. Whatever obstacles he encountered were surmounted by his military conduct and the valor of Tancred, and if the Norman prince affected to spare the Greeks, he gorged his soldiers with the full plunder of an heretical castle. The nobles of France pressed forwards with vain and thoughtless ardor, of which their nation has been sometimes accused. From the Alps to Apulia, the march of Hugh the Great, of the two Roberts, and of Stephen of Chartres, through a wealthy country and amidst the applauding Catholics, was a devout or triumphant progress. They kissed the feet of the Roman pontiff, and the golden standard of St. Peter was delivered to the brother of the French monarch. But in this visit of piety and pleasure, they neglected to secure the season and the means of their embarkation. The winter was insensibly lost. Their troops were scattered and corrupted in the towns of Italy. They separately accomplished their passage, regardless of safety or dignity, and within nine months from the Feast of the Assumption, the day appointed by Urban, all the Latin princes had reached Constantinople, but the Count of Vermandois was produced as a captive. His foremost vessels were scattered by a tempest, and his person, against the law of nations, was detained by the lieutenants of Alexius. Yet the arrival of Yu had been announced by four-and-twenty knights in golden armor, who commanded the emperor to revere the general of the Latin Christians, the brother of the king of kings. In some oriental tale I have read the fable of a shepherd, who was ruined by the accomplishment of his own wishes. He had prayed for water, the Ganges was turned into his grounds, and his flock and cottage were swept away by the inundation. Such was the fortune, or at least the apprehension, of the Greek emperor, Alexius Comnenus, whose name has already appeared in this history, and whose conduct is so differently represented by his daughter Anne, and by the Latin writers. In the council of Placentia, his ambassadors had solicited a moderate succor, perhaps of ten thousand soldiers, but he was astonished by the approach of so many potent chiefs and fanatic nations. The emperor fluctuated between hope and fear, between timidity and courage, but in the crooked policy which he mistook for wisdom, I cannot believe, I cannot discern, that he maliciously conspired against the life or honor of the French heroes. The promiscuous multitudes of Peter the Hermit were savage beasts, alike destitute of humanity and reason. Nor was it possible for Alexius to prevent or deplore their destruction. The troops of Godfrey and his peers were less contemptible, but not less suspicious, to the Greek emperor. Their motives might be pure and pious, but he was equally alarmed by his knowledge of the ambitious Bohemond, and his ignorance of the transalpine chiefs. The courage of the French was blind and headstrong, they might be tempted by the luxury and wealth of Greece, and elated by the view and opinion of their invincible strength, 
and Jerusalem might be forgotten in the prospect of Constantinople. After a long march and painful abstinence, the troops of Godfrey encamped in the plains of Thrace. They heard with indignation that their brother, the Count of Vermandois, was imprisoned by the Greeks, and their reluctant duke was compelled to indulge them in some freedom of retaliation and rapine. They were appeased by the submission of Alexius. He promised to supply their camp, and as they refused in the midst of winter to pass the Bosphorus, their quarters were assigned among the gardens and palaces on the shores of that narrow sea. But an incurable jealousy still rankled in the minds of the two nations, who despised each other as slaves and barbarians. Ignorance is the ground of suspicion, and suspicion was inflamed into daily provocations. Prejudice is blind, hunger is deaf, and Alexius is accused of a design to starve or assault the Latins in a dangerous post on all sides encompassed with the waters. Godfrey sounded his trumpets, burst the net, overspread the plain, and insulted the suburbs, but the gates of Constantinople were strongly fortified, the ramparts were lined with archers, and, after a doubtful conflict, both parties listened to the voice of peace and religion. The gifts and promises of the emperor insensibly soothed the fierce spirit of the western strangers. As a Christian warrior, he rekindled their zeal for the prosecution of their holy enterprise, which he engaged to second with his troops and treasures. On the return of spring, Godfrey was persuaded to occupy a pleasant and plentiful camp in Asia, and no sooner had he passed the Bosphorus than the Greek vessels were suddenly recalled to the opposite shore. The same policy was repeated with the succeeding chiefs, who were swayed by the example and weakened by the departure of their foremost companions. By his skill and diligence, Alexius prevented the union of any two of the confederate armies at the same moment under the walls of Constantinople, and before the feast of the Pentecost, not a Latin pilgrim was left on the coast of Europe. The same arms which threatened Europe might deliver Asia and repel the Turks from the neighboring shores of the Bosphorus and Hellespont. The fair provinces from Nice to Antioch were the recent patrimony of the Roman emperor, and his ancient and perpetual claim still embraced the kingdoms of Syria and Egypt. In his enthusiasm, Alexius indulged, or affected, the ambitious hope of leading his new allies to subvert the thrones of the East, but the calmer dictates of reason and temper dissuaded him from exposing his royal person to the faith of unknown and lawless barbarians. His prudence, or his pride, was content with exhorting from the French princes an oath of homage and fidelity, and a solemn promise that they would either restore or hold their Asiatic conquests as the humble and loyal vassals of the Roman Empire. Their independent spirit was fired at the mention of this foreign and voluntary servitude. They successively yielded to the dexterous application of gifts and flattery, and the first proselytes became the most eloquent and effectual missionaries to multiply the companions of their shame. The pride of you of Vermandois was soothed by the honors of his captivity, and in the brother of the French king, the example of submission was prevalent and weighty. In the mind of Godfrey of Bouillon, 
every human consideration was subordinate to the glory of God and the success of the crusade, he had firmly resisted the temptations of Bohemond and Raymond, who urged the attack and conquest of Constantinople. Alexius esteemed his virtues, deservedly named him the champion of the empire, and dignified his homage with the filial name and rights of adoption. The hateful Bohemond was received as a true and ancient ally, and if the emperor reminded him of former hostilities, it was only to praise the valor that he had displayed, and the glory that he had acquired in the fields of Durazzo and Larissa. The son of Guiscard was lodged and entertained, and served with imperial pomp. One day, as he passed through the gallery of the palace, a door was carelessly left open to expose a pile of gold and silver, of silk and gems, of curious and costly furniture, that was heaped, in seeming disorder, from the floor to the roof of the chamber. What conquests, exclaimed the ambitious miser, might not be achieved by the possession of such a treasure? It is your own, replied a Greek attendant, who watched the motions of his soul, and Bohemond, after some hesitation, condescended to accept this magnificent present. The Norman was flattered by the assurance of an independent principality, and Alexius alluded, rather than denied, his daring demand for the office of great domestic or general of the East. The two Roberts, the son of the conqueror of England, and the kinsman of three queens, bowed in their turn before the Byzantine throne. A private letter of Stephen of Chartres attests his admiration to the emperor, the most excellent and liberal of men, who taught him to believe that he was a favorite, and promised to educate and establish his youngest son. In his southern province, the Count of St. Giles and Thoulouse faintly recognized the supremacy of the King of France, a prince of a foreign nation and language. At the head of a hundred thousand men, he declared that he was the soldier and servant of Christ alone, and that the Greek might be satisfied with an equal treaty of alliance and friendship. His obstinate resistance enhanced the value and the price of his submission, and he shone, says the Princess Anne, among the barbarians, as the sun amidst the stars of heaven. His disgust of the noise and insolence of the French, his suspicions of the designs of Bohemond, the emperor imparted to his faithful Raymond, and that aged statesman might clearly discern that however false in friendship, he was sincere in his enmity. The spirit of chivalry was at last subdued in the person of Tancray, and none could deem themselves dishonored by the imitation of that gallant knight. He disdained the golden flattery of the Greek monarch, assaulted in his presence an insolent patrician, escaped to Asia in the habit of a private soldier, and yielded with a sigh to the authority of Bohemond and the interest of the Christian cause. The best and most ostensible reason was the impossibility of passing the sea and accomplishing their vow without the license and the vessels of Alexius. But they cherished a secret hope that as soon as they trod the continent of Asia, their swords would obliterate their shame and dissolve the engagement which on his side might not be very faithfully performed. The ceremony of their homage was grateful to a people who had long since considered pride as the substitute of power. High on his throne, the emperor sat mute and immovable,
His majesty was adored by the Latin princes, and they submitted to kiss either his feet or his knees, an indignity which their own writers are ashamed to confess and unable to deny. Private or public interests suppressed the murmurs of the dukes and counts, but a French baron, he is supposed to be Robert of Paris, presumed to ascend the throne and to place himself by the side of Alexius. The sage reproof of Baldwin provoked him to exclaim, in his barbarous idiom, Who is this rustic that keeps his seat, while so many valiant captains are standing round him? The emperor maintained his silence, dissembled his indignation, and questioned his interpreter concerning the meaning of the words, which he partly suspected from the universal language of gesture and countenance. Before the departure of the pilgrims, he endeavored to learn the name and condition of the audacious baron. I am a Frenchman, replied Robert, of the purest and most ancient nobility of my country. All that I know is that there is a church in my neighborhood, the resort of those who are desirous of approving their valor in single combat. Till an enemy appears, they address their prayers to God and his saints. That church I have frequently visited, but never have I found an antagonist who dared to accept my defiance. Alexius dismissed the challenger with some prudent advice for his conduct in the Turkish warfare, and history repeats with pleasure this lively example of the manners of his age and country. The conquest of Asia was undertaken and achieved by Alexander with thirty-five thousand Macedonians and Greeks, and his best hope was in the strength and discipline of his phalanx of infantry. The principal force of the crusaders consisted in their cavalry, and when that force was mustered in the plains of Bithynia, the knights and their martial attendants on horseback amounted to one hundred thousand fighting men, completely armed with the helmet and coat of mail. The value of these soldiers deserved a strict and authentic account, and the flower of European chivalry might furnish, in a first effort, this formidable body of heavy horse. A part of the infantry might be enrolled for the service of scouts, pioneers, and archers, but the promiscuous crowd were lost in their own disorder, and we depend not on the eyes and knowledge, but on the belief and fancy of a chaplain of Count Baldwin, in the estimate of six hundred thousand pilgrims able to bear arms, besides the priests and monks, the women and children of the Latin camp. The reader starts, and before he is recovered from his surprise, I shall add, on the same testimony, that if all who took the cross had accomplished their vow, above six millions would have migrated from Europe to Asia. Under this oppression of faith, I derive some relief from a more sagacious and thinking writer, who, after the same review of the cavalry, accuses the credulity of the priest of Chartres, and even doubts whether the cis-alpine regions, in the geography of a Frenchman, were sufficient to produce and pour forth such incredible multitudes. The coolest skepticism will remember that of these religious volunteers great numbers never beheld Constantinople and Nice. Of enthusiasm the influence is irregular and transient. Many were detained at home by reason or cowardice, by poverty or weakness, and many were repulsed by the obstacles of the way, the more insuperable as they were unforeseen to these ignorant fanatics. 
the savage countries of Hungary and Bulgaria were whitened with their bones, their vanguard was cut in pieces by the Turkish sultan, and the loss of the first adventure, by the sword or climate or fatigue, has already been stated at three hundred thousand men, yet the myriads that survived, that marched, that pressed forwards on the holy pilgrimage, were a subject of astonishment to themselves and to the Greeks. The copious energy of her language sinks under the efforts of the Princess Anne. The images of locusts, of leaves and flowers, of the sands of the sea or the stars of heaven, imperfectly represent what she had seen and heard, and the daughter of Alexius exclaims, that Europe was loosened from its foundations and hurled against Asia. The ancient hosts of Darius and Xerxes labor under the same doubt of a vague and indefinite magnitude, but I am inclined to believe that a larger number has never been contained within the lines of a single camp than at the siege of Nice, the first operation of the Latin princes. Their motives, their characters, and their arms have been already displayed, of their troops the most numerous portion were the natives of France. The low countries, the banks of the Rhine and Apulia, sent a powerful reinforcement. Some bands of adventurers were drawn from Spain, Lombardy, and England, and from the distant bogs and mountains of Ireland or Scotland issued some naked and savage fanatics, ferocious at home, but unwarlike abroad. Had not superstition condemned the sacrilegious prudence, of depriving the poorest or weakest Christians of the merit of pilgrimage, the useless crowd, with mouths but without hands, might have been stationed in the Greek empire, till their companions had opened and secured the way of the Lord. A small remnant of the pilgrims, who passed the Bosphorus, was permitted to visit the holy sepulchre. Their northern constitution was scorched by the rays and infected by the vapors of a Syrian sun, they consumed with heedless prodigality their stores of water and provision their numbers exhausted the inland country the sea was remote the greeks were unfriendly and the christians of every sect fled before the voracious and cruel rapine of their brethren in the dire necessity of famine they sometimes roasted and devoured the flesh of their infant or adult captives among the turks and saracens the idolaters of Europe were rendered more odious by the name and reputation of cannibals. The spies who introduced themselves into the kitchen of Bohemond were shown several human bodies turning on the spit, and the artful Norman encouraged a report which increased at the same time the abhorrence and the terror of the infidels. End of chapter 58, part 3